This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM, channel 132. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm a registered representative of Foresight Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor at Wisdom Tree. Discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products. And the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show. We're going to be talking about the alternative credit space um, with an expert who has a lot of research on uh, investing, fixed income, and some unique options in today's market. But Professor, I know you have been focused on the inflation story. We had a big inflation number, uh, and the market uh, didn't care so much, huh? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, so uh, let, let me let me talk about that. Uh, for, first of all, I, I uh, am not as quiescent about this inflation number. It was uh, explained away because of trucks and used cars, and that's one-third or two-thirds or whatever they say. There's a lot of inflation that's not yet in that CPI. The uh, housing inflation gets put in very, very slowly as rent contracts and home prices get put in. Uh, Oil continues to rise. Uh, Yes, some of the sensitive commodity prices are down from their highs, but they're still well above what they were um, pre-pandemic. The, the labor shortage is still extreme uh, in many ways. So I don't think it looks good. Now, now why did the bond market uh, not react? I think, the bond, and I think the bond market actually is reacting to uh, the, you know, the, the virtual collapse. I, I do uh, know there's a new proposal now for for infrastructure by an alternative group of Republicans, but basically it looks like the bipartisan uh, uh, infrastructure bill, which would have been trillions, and that that's a huge deal for the bond market. And and what we've seen is when when that spending now looks less likely, uh, that could easily give you a 20 basis point decline in yields, which is pretty much uh, what we have. Um, so you know, I think that. The, you know, I think what what happens at an infrastructure, does it really die? Does it get revived is important, but I think it's also what's going to be really important. Now, we do get the PPI next Tuesday. That's of mild importance. I, I'm looking to Wednesday's FOMC meeting. I think it's going to be uh, a surprise hawkish because it's a meeting where the uh, 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 dot plot is going to be revealed. I think people are going to get much more aggressive on when they're going to raise rates. I think that's going to grab headlines. And I think that Wednesday is going to be a little ripple there in the bond market. And that ripple, of course, will pass through the stock market, too. (laughs) So I I think I would look toward the Fed meeting now as the next big thing that will uh, move markets. And that's um, coming up in five days. Yeah, it seems like the that growth and versus small cap is sort of like, you know, right after the market traded, you saw the NASDAQ and the growth stocks do well. It's sort of still trading with rates. I mean, it seems to be like that's the yeah, predominant narrative. Exactly. I mean, the, 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 the narrative, and we've talked about this, is that the growth stocks will trade with those rates. 
and um uh you know because there's no you know i mean there that you know there's no real news uh pro or con reopening or what the growth stocks are doing or the value stocks so it's the really almost all the bounces you get up and down have to do with the link uh towards uh the rates um the economy still looks extremely strong uh you know we've said that generally this inflation i mean uh you know, the rates are going to fall way behind the inflation rate, so borrowing money and cost of money is still going to be low, and real assets are still going to do well. So, you know, I'm still very um, much in stocks, very pro stocks. Um, next thing I'm watching is the Fed. Um, you know, I think that uh, they're going to say, you know what, um, we're beginning to look at uh, that, uh, that tapering, and um, we'll do it sooner rather than later. And so that hawkish surprise comes on in, in terms of the specific formats of how you think that shows up next week. Is it just through those projections? Is it through commentary? It's going to be, first of all, the dot plot's going to be moved forward. The fact that no one thinks that next year we're going to raise rates, I think that a lot of people will say that we're going to raise rates. We may get a dissent on a, uh, it may, we may get it in the statement uh, that comes out at 2 o'clock. And, uh, and then, of course, there's the press conference. Um, you know, it, there's many, you know, between two, 2.30, the press conference starts, it's the 45 minutes. Um, we see those dots move forward. We see the statements say more are concerned about inflation. We have to be more vigilant. I think there's a little too much complacency in the market that the Fed, oh, yeah, this is temporary. Uh, they're they're going to continue that narrative. I think that some of the members of the Fed are uh, getting feedback from their own constituencies saying uh, this is something that uh, you have to worry about. Um, clearly, I, I could be wrong on that, but uh, that would be my take on, uh, on, on next week's action. This is, a, this is the big story of the year, so it's, uh, it's always great to get your, your feedback on it. Any other sort of things you're, you're watching as we go into next week? Uh, you know, uh, again, the producer price index, uh, is that also going to exceed expectations? You see oil just continue to march up. Um, and now gasoline prices, which took a two-month pause, are beginning to creep up again. We'll see whether those pressures are uh, continuing. But uh, really the pressures are going to be on the labor side. Um, uh, I mean, the, the shortages that you hear are um, really stories that I – I never remember. I mean, you know, probably in World War II, which is before I was born, you know, clearly you couldn't get enough people, people in the armed forces, such and so on. Uh, I've never heard labor shortage stories around in my lifetime. Well, Professor, uh, I know we've got a big week ahead of us next week, so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll check we'll back. We'll analyze in. it next Friday. Yes, absolutely. That'll be fun. Thank you, Professor, for some comments to start the show. Thank you. Have a great weekend. I'm going to turn to our guest for the program remaining hour. It's Chris Aceto, CEO and Chief Investment Officer at Gapstow Capital Partners, a registered investment advisor that advises index clients uh, and and others on on opportunities in the alternative credit markets. Wisdom Tree is one of those clients, Chris, uh, and we have we have launched a an ETF. Um, HYIN, actually, um, the alternative income fund tied to the Gapstow Liquid Alternative Credit Index. Uh, so it's exciting to have you talk a little bit about your background, Gapstow's background, and the, the opportunity in those credit markets. Thanks for joining Behind the Markets. Hey, it's my pleasure, Jeremy. Look forward to it. 
So tell our listeners about you before you came to Gapsdale. You have a long, uh, long career. Maybe give our listeners a little bit about your your personal background here. My my personal background. Well, I, I thought coming out of college I was going to be an economist and followed that route for uh, for a number of years, but quickly turned to investment management and I uh, worked. Uh, for an institutional consulting firm for quite a number of years, working with institutional investors and asset managers on broad asset allocation and strategic planning issues. I then uh, joined a a large private equity firm to build out a a hedge fund business during the the mid-2000s, and then created Gapstow in in 2009. So my career has always been investment management, with the last 12 years being at Gapstow Capital Partners, which, uh, again, I, I founded. And it was with an idea, Jeremy, that, uh, that this space that we now call alternative credit would become a particularly interesting one, which maybe really prior to the last great financial crisis, um, we, uh, you know, we, we, we only saw beginning to emerge. Yeah, so let's talk about. I mean, we've, we've been talking about the fixed income markets and the challenges of fixed income on behind the markets. I mean, for a long time. I mean, you heard Professor Siegel a little bit on his narrative on inflation and some of the challenges. But let's talk about the the dynamic where you see the climate. I mean, you, you've done a lot of work with institutions in your consulting consulting work over the years. Like, what do you see the challenge for most investors with fixed income yields today? Uh, that there isn't any. Uh, you have to be slightly facetious about it, Jeremy. That's the, that's the great challenge. And it's, it's yield, but also if you look at the relationship between yield and forward-looking return, those two go hand in hand. And so for accepting traditional investment-grade exposure, you're, you're at this point in time really setting yourself up for a very low return combined with a very low yield going forward. And the challenge is that that's a difficult position to have in an asset allocation. If, in fact, you're trying to meet your individual goals, as a, whether it be personal retirement or you're a pension plan who's trying to achieve a certain actuarial return, um, you know, having, having, having part of your portfolio looking to gain next to, next to zero or very, very low single digits is, is a challenging proposition, which, as you know, is in contrast to prior decades where a 60-40 portfolio was a very logical place to be. But unfortunately, AAAs no longer get you 6.5%. And so the world is having to rethink that non-equity part of their portfolio. Yeah, those were the days, uh, the easy days when you could get uh, a, a nice coupon. But now, so like, where do you, when you when you're talking to institutions and and investors, what do you see as the most common things they're doing? And and then let's we could talk about alternative credit as is the role there. Yeah, well, well, they are seeking out for for those people who can't take a hundred percent equity exposure. That's one thing to do. You can just keep all your money in equities, but a lot of people. I think believe that there should be some diversification around that, and they've given some thought to whether it be real assets or uh, uh, hedge fund strategies or um, you know other non-equity oriented strategies. But a very large percentage of the attention has been on this space that you and I keep referring to as alternative credit, which you know for for the audience, I think. Uh, a definition may be, may be uh, 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 timely here. Um, at least at Gapstow, we use alternative credit to refer to at least four big categories of investment. 
uh, below investment grade traded credit. So think about high yield bonds or leveraged loans. Um, Structured credit is another area where you might take exposure to mortgage-backed securities or or asset-backed securities. Thirdly, distressed debt, um, in which um, you're getting paid to take strong credit risk and restructuring uh, risk with a with a company. And then, lastly, and I'm sure we'll spend a lot of time talking about this today, private lending, which is in non-bank uh, origination and funding of loans to corporations, commercial real estate developers, et cetera, um, that, uh, that are, that are um, made by funds and managers as opposed to banks. What's common about all of that? The commonality is that relative to investment-grade fixed income, um, these sectors offer the expectation that there will be higher yields and higher returns uh, on a forward-looking basis. And that's, that's what is driving this interest, and I would argue that's a you know, a phenomenon of the last 10 years is we've really, you know, begun to slowly but surely accept a perhaps lower for longer future. Now, when people try to get access to this private lending market and private credit, as we're talking about, talk about the challenges. I mean, there's also obviously private credit. I'm sure there's all sorts of private structures that people can do. and, And the challenges of those private structures tend to be you know, high fees and lockups in terms of your capital and, and things like that. Any other things you would point out to when, when people are looking at this private credit opportunity? Yeah, yeah I, I think there, there are some institutional um, challenges to becoming more active here. Um, partly it's because the asset class is somewhat new or that collection of asset classes. Secondly, as you mentioned, Jeremy, a lot of Historically, at least historic, a lot of the allocations have been made through private funds, and the audience may be familiar with the differentiation between a public and a private fund. You know, we're, we're all aware of ETFs and mutual funds that are, so to speak, publicly offered, but a lot of investment structures are privately offered, and those require uh, a level of sophistication um, as defined by regulators, certain minimum income or wealth requirements before being allowed into one of those funds. Sometimes the minimums are measured in multiple millions of dollars for a first investment. Um, And they also have to be comfortable with the fact that their money is locked up for a long time with a manager. Um, And then from their operational issues like calls and redemptions and, and distributions of cash on an ongoing basis. And then this very tricky tax form that arrives at the end of the year and so forth. For many investors, this has been a series of asset classes that maybe intellectually they're interested in, but practically um, has proved somewhat challenging to gain exposure to, unlike large institutions who have the internal staff and the uh, external advisors to, uh, to navigate their way through that private fund sort of offering. We're talking with Chris Aceto, who is the founder and CEO of GapStow, um, who focuses on this 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 alternative credit asset class. Uh, and, and Chris, so you created the GapStow Liquid Alternative Credit Index, what you called the the Glacy, or, or I don't know if you were Glacy. Glacy. Um, let's talk about the Glacy uh, in terms of the the, the very basics. In terms of what you think about as you thought about building this 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 proxy. Um, I mean, certainly we've talked about the macro environment as the the background for it, but maybe talk anything else as you were creating the Glacy, any other considerations, and then how you started thinking about the constituents and building it up from the ground up and top down. Yeah, uh, good question. This thought exercise went back about 
three years ago, Jeremy, where we began to think about, um, is there a, a way to make this alternative credit asset class more readily available to an individual investor? That was, that was the thought process. Now, we wanted it to be a, a, a good offering in the sense that if we had an institutional client who came in and said, I'm a pension fund, I'd love to get money in alternative credit, what would you suggest, Gapstow? Probably one of our first um, responses would be diversification. Diversification across borrower types that you wouldn't want to simply be putting uh, money with corporate borrowers. Um, or individual borrowers, or commercial real estate borrowers, or sovereign borrowers. You'd want a diversified mix of those. Secondly, you'd want to have some distressed, some performing, um, different, some structured credit in there as well, so that you know you could take advantage of different areas of the market, different aspects of the the credit cycles of individuals versus corporations, etc., because that will prove beneficial in the long run. So if you were an institution, you'd say, terrific, let's find 15 or 20 private funds that do all those different specializations and bring them all together. Um, And that would make for an interesting offering. But as we've already discussed, easier said than done for you and me. Um, uh, What could we do to proxy that? And we we began to focus on a series of uh, offerings in the marketplace that uh, we, we call publicly traded alternative credit vehicles. That, in fact, uh, while it is a smaller market than the private fund universe, nonetheless, there are quite a number of vehicles, um, call them companies, that trade um, on the stock market that you can, you can see a ticker for and, and price throughout the day like you would Apple or any other stock. But there's a, a unique feature of these publicly traded alternative credit vehicles, which is their balance sheets consist of alternative credit investments. And if you think it helpful, Jeremy, maybe we can go into a, maybe a specific example, like what does a BDC do? Yeah, yeah, no, I think so. It's interesting, these these baskets, um, the underlying portfolios end up being loans, to your point. Like when you look through the underlying, you're, you're, you're trying to assemble a portfolio of loans, like these private, yeah. these. but the vehicles is a combination of things like business development companies, mortgage REITs, and, and closed-end funds. I, and so let's talk about each of those. I mean, I think the business development companies is one of those of the most interesting segments in here. And, and I have some personal experience with business development companies as an indexer uh, a, a number of years ago. I, this may have been 10 years ago. I forget the year they, they did this to us, but the, they started making you report on quote unquote acquired fund fees of these business development companies and basically every index from Russell, S&P, MSCI kicked the BDCs out um, because they they end up having these quote unquote fund fees included even though the structure is a, is a strange structure and it would have made your expense ratios go up like 70, 80 basis points because they were so out, you know, outsized. But talk about, so I have experience with them, and but that tells you a lot of people shun them because they were kicked out of indexes. So talk about your yeah. thinking about these. Yeah, well, and, and, and that's, uh, I mean, it was legitimate to think about that, but, you know, let's, uh, you know, that was a, an interesting uh, uh, turn of events there because, you know, it, it didn't have anything to do necessarily with the fundamental efficacy and benefit of the investment. It was the fact that this technicality had this 
fee yes. reporting requirement that made them a little less desirable. So, so what's a BDC? A BDC is a business development company, which I will explain to people, it's like thinking about it as a specialized bank. Now, they're not a bank. They're not licensed as the bank, and they're not regulated as a bank. But what do they do? They make loans. That's their primary business. And by definition, uh, both according to the tax authorities and the regulatory authorities, they make those loans to uh, corporations and mid-sized corporations. In fact, the government created these structures in order to um, facilitate this non-bank lending as a way of developing capital markets in the United States. Um, so so a, a business development company might hold 100 loans made to smaller to mid-sized companies within the United States. And those loans can be as for various purposes, but, uh, but that's what they are. And the BDC's balance sheet includes only that. Just as you may go to a community bank and say, what's on your balance sheet? They're going to show you loans. Um, BDCs are fairly simple in that regard. The balance sheet is loans. And like banks, there's a bit of leverage within the structure, certainly not as much as a bank, um, who's often 10 times as levered, but that's, that is the structure. And what's interesting, Jerry, so, so, so by buying a BDC, buying shares in a business, a business development company, you're effectively gaining that exposure to all of those underlying loans because the performance of the BDC at the end of the day is going to be only as good as the performance of their underlying loans, just as a bank is only as good as the performance of their underlying loans. And so the, the, the little bit of a difference here is um, that if you were a big institution, you would invest in a, you would be a shareholder in a private fund. We're arguing that you can accomplish a lot of the same uh, exposures by being a shareholder. In this case, we're talking about a BDC or exposure to the same loans. What's really interesting is some of the best managers out there, some of the best middle market lenders run both private funds and BDCs. And so you're, you're gaining exposure to a lot of the same loans um, just through the different vehicles. Yeah, so maybe you could talk about how you thought about sizing the exposures of these different baskets into the Glacy Index, and and where when you, when you thought about these BDCs, you know the, the 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 consideration of how you got to the managers that you decided to allocate to in in the index. Yep. yep. So so to take a brief step back, uh, as we talked about five minutes ago or so. The goal is to create a diversified basket. And so BDCs play an important role within the Glacy Index because they gain exposure to private corporate loans. But we also wanted exposure to commercial real estate lending and lending to residential mortgages and asset-backed securities um, to, to individual lenders as well, um, private forms of those activities as well as securitized and some public forms as well. So, so how did we begin gaining access to all of those? There's an equivalent on the BDC side that says if you identify the 15 to 20 mortgage REITs that focus on commercial real estate lending, what a nice way to build a diversified portfolio of exposures to mid-sized commercial real estate lending. Okay, now let's also think about there are also other REITs that gain exposure to that residential exposure. So we took that universe of publicly traded alternative credit vehicles, EDCs, mortgage REITs, credit-centric closed-in funds, divided those up into six categories, 
and said that if you held a weighted balance of all six of those sectors, that you would in fact achieve some degree of diversification across different borrower types. And that was kind of the basis of the Glacier Index um, to create a diversified basket of alternative credit exposures. But at the same time, being investable, which I think is important because all of these, uh, these individual entities are, are uh, publicly traded, as I know we'll come back to uh, uh, today. So, so that was it. Within then, Jeremy, we, we then said, okay, of each of those sectors, um, we chose representation of the largest um, EDCs or mortgage REITs that represented each of those to create the 35 constituents within the Glacy Index. We thought it important to equally weight all of those rather than market cap weight them because we wanted diversification amongst the different uh, constituents uh, and not, not have some skews due to, to market cap, that we wanted the risk to be more at that sector level than concern about uh, overexposure to any one individual entity. Now, you know, one of the things that you talk about is that in a way you're 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 compiling a group of the the expertise of these managers that you're you know, you're you're relying on the expertise that you're using a lot of top tier managers. Are there any BDC managers you'd focus on in terms of the their overall approach, they having, you know, private public funds and, and things that just to sort of mention the names of the types of managing management teams that you're getting access to? Well, you know, the, the types of management are, are many of the great names that people associate with a lot of private markets activities. So be it Aries or KKR or Gollum, you know, the, all managers that are very well known and very well regarded um, quite often are managing um, these publicly traded vehicles in addition to their private funds. So in addition to gaining access to this interesting asset class, you're actually gaining access to the management of this asset class by some of the best practitioners as well, or certainly the, the most well-regarded ones at that. Yeah, no, it's, it's interesting. Now, when you think about the, the, we haven't quite talked about the spreads that you get, you know, over like, you know, we talked, you talked about these different buckets of, of, um, alternative credit and what the the opportunities are. I mean, I, certainly this people are looking at this for income. BDCs are one of the highest elements of income within the Glacy. I mean, w- when you think about the the risk that comes in going for high yield, how do you think about the the, the challenge and maybe talk about the, the, the opportunity size, like the, the credit spreads and then the the challenge that comes with these um, from a... Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I, I think, first of all, to, you, you mentioned the dividend. Um, there is another interesting feature, in addition to it being publicly traded, that is shared by BDCs, mortgage REITs, and credit-centric closed-end funds, is that they are required to distribute virtually all of their income um, throughout the year. Um, and in order to maintain a special tax status that they have, that is a requirement, and you know that that's unlike um, some other areas where, uh, where where perhaps there's either some reinvestment or the dividend is pretty low. So it, at at the end of the last quarter, the dividend yield on the index was 8.7 percent. Um, if you if you added up and weighted all the individual constituents, because they're very very strong 
income producing and required income distributing uh, uh, entities uh, overall. But that's that's part of the appeal as well to these this interesting set of classes that we're dealing with. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think one of the things you've we've described these baskets as like hybrids between debt and equity, so that there is, you know, it is not like your traditional fixed income, right? It's not just a. It, it's certainly not investment grade fixed income. It's more. It's got some equity volatility to it. So, like in crisis, like like March, like these things would have been down, right? They and they were Jeremy. That's a, the, the, a yet another. You're, you keep you nicely are unraveling the uh, all the intricacies of, of publicly traded alternative credit vehicles. Um, the, one of the features is that they don't have to trade at net asset value. If you're familiar, your audience is familiar with uh, mutual funds, of course, and ETFs. Those effectively trade at net asset value. That your shares coming in will be traded in at the value of the underlying holdings. And, and, and similarly, you will buy in. That doesn't necessarily happen with publicly traded alternative credit vehicles, that their share price can deviate either at a premium or a discount to net asset value depending on uh, flow. Now, the positive to that is that a BDC doesn't have to, unlike a mutual fund, a BDC doesn't have to worry about cash coming in and out of the vehicle all the time and having to manage that. Um, that, that once the money is invested in the BDC, that you trade your shares on a secondary basis, just like Apple, Apple does. But that does bring some extra volatility, um, as you mentioned, because of that ability to trade away from net asset value. The net asset value is actually fairly stable over time. The dividend policy of these entities is remarkably consistent over time. The premium of discount to net asset value at which they trade is not so consistent over time. And that brings some additional volatility relative to what you might see in a private fund, which is only marked, say, yeah. every quarter. No, and, and that's one of the things people can watch. I mean, I remember last year, I mean, I bought each of these different baskets individually. Like your your basket wasn't available. And, you know, I looked at the, oper- you know, the, when, during the sell-off. I, I mean, I bought each of the three different baskets uh, in, in different ways. So I, I think there is opportunities in that over time and, and 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 even today with the challenges we're going to talk continue to be talking with chris Cicito, the founder and ceo of gapstow we do have to take a short break we're going to continue talking about liquid credit alternative credit i'm jeremy schwartz this is behind the markets so chris in the in, as we're just talking about the discounts that can come to NAV, net asset value, and we, we were talking about that in, in context of, of business development companies, BDCs. It also comes into play traditionally with closed-end funds, and, you, and you've created a basket of closed-end funds, and that, and that can trade at a discount premium. Maybe talk about, as you were thinking about drilling into the underlying portfolios, the loans within these closed-end funds, what are the types of managers you were seeking out? How did you find the baskets that you found attractive to get exposure to? Yeah, well, speaking very specifically to the credit-centric closed-end funds that we were looking at, to to us, that universe really broke into two groups, Um, one that very much focused on high-yield bonds and levered loans, so to speak, corporate credit, and those that did something a little bit more diversified, particularly when it comes to adding a bit, if not a fair amount, of exposure to 
mortgage securities, and other forms of debt that weren't corporate in their orientation. So first thing we did was break out those two um, groups overall. They have slightly different dynamics, and we wanted both to have some representation um, within the portfolio overall. And, and for the index, we then concentrated on some of the larger names within each of those categories to, to have within them, again, with many of the larger managers being um, represented by the likes of, you know, PIMCO or Eaton Vance or a few others that, you know, are, are very well-regarded companies. And, uh, and uh, we, we thought, uh, you know, having that higher cap skew uh, to the group was important. And so when you're looking for, when you think about the, the number of closed ends you put in the basket, you talked about, you know, trying, we have, you have 35 different constituents in the total index. How much generally, when you thought about these closed ends, what the approximate target weight, you know, we talked about BDCs, and then how do you think about this basket and, and sort of that diversified yep. portfolio? Well, but we, we didn't actually think of representation of closed end per se. What we did think about is how much, for example, how much public corporate debt did we want to have within that por- this portfolio? And we, we determined that that should be a number about 20% of the portfolio should be in this public corporate debt. And so we wanted to make sure that we had that exposure. And since most of that exposure came through the cre- closed-end funds that focused on public corporate credit, um, high-yield corporate credit, that uh, that's how we determined to have seven or eight constituents represented in that area. Well, that makes sense. And so we've talked about private corporates. That's from the BDCs. That was about 20%. We got public corporates at 20%. That's from these closed ends. Um, and then you also talk about multi-sector, and that's where these closed ends also are doing some things, some combination of of this public Corpor- and, and other things. Corporate, but, but, but a lot of uh, mortgage securities, because we also want to make sure that we have exposure to real estate debt, both commercial real estate debt as well as residential real estate debt, and, and then some consumer lending as well. Uh, commercial real estate is a big component of, of the portfolio as well. That's another sector that's roughly 20% of the portfolio overall. Um, most of that exposure is taken through commercial, commercial real estate-oriented mortgage REITs, and very much as BDCs make those loans uh, to businesses, commercial real estate-oriented mortgage REITs make large mortgage loans to uh, to, to to large buildings. Um, I shouldn't be so. But some of them do that. Others have a smaller cap focus. Others have uh, have have more of a, a, a development orientation towards those. But it's all commercial real estate um, in its orientation. So. Again, very importantly, we just didn't want to have corporate credit exposure. We just didn't want to have commercial real estate exposure. We just didn't want to have exposure to consumer finance and household debt. We wanted a mix of all of that. Because um, I think it, one of the primary points, too, we like to remind our clients of is as much as we often speak to the credit cycle in the U.S. economy, we will point out that there's no singular credit cycle that that household balance sheets quite often look very different at a point in time than do corporate balance sheets, than do sovereign balance sheets, than do uh, commercial real estate balance sheets. That those all vary through time and have idiosyncratic movements to them, um, which is why and the, the motivation for holding a, a basket of exposures to all of those different borrower classes. 
So yeah, the mortgage REITs is actually when you when you go down to this other basket, we haven't spent a lot of time on the mortgage REITs you've alluded to. There's different types of mortgages. There's commercial, and there's some some others. Um, and and I and I think when when you've presented to me on the mortgage REITs, there's like three different buckets from the commercial real estate, agency real estate, and then non-agency real estate. Do you, you want to talk a little bit about the different baskets between these three subgroups of of mortgage REITs? Absolutely. So, so commercial real estate REITs, we've, we've discussed, that's for professional builders and developers, be they of skyscrapers or of strip malls or of multifamily housing. Um, agency mortgages are REITs that focus more on the purchase of mortgage securities from uh, government agencies that have direct or implicit um, government backing. And then a, another facet, and the third fascinating sector is the non-agency uh, mortgage refocus. Those are groups that are, rather than buying mortgage securities, actually originating their own loans. And post the financial crisis, this has been a, a, an area of significant growth um, for borrowers, so to speak, that are non-conforming, particularly to um, the, the, some of the requirements that banks now need to have in order to make individual loans. Um, these are individual lenders who will, will make those because they have an ability to extend credit in slightly different ways than can banks. Yeah, and so you're, you're getting access to commercial, residential, and then there's this, this, this distinction between agency and non-agency. In, in, in forming the, the combination, was there anything, as, as you thought about building that, that combination of real estate, anything, how do you put it all together? Yeah, uh, well, I must say there, was, there, there could have been a computer optimizer that did all this, Jeremy. I think we were thinking of this on a much higher level, which is roughly speaking, you know, could we get uh, a blend of something like uh, 40% corporate, 30% commercial real estate, 30% household and, 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 and household residential real estate? You know, that, that, that was directionally sort of ratios that we were looking at. Similarly, as we thought about the forms of that credit, we also thought that it would be nice to gain, um, you know, uh, half of 40 to 50% through private lending and, and loans and direct loans, uh, a certain percentage, a smaller percentage through uh, structured credit and a certain percentage through the traded credit as well. Call that, you know, again, kind of a 40, 30, 30 type lens so that we would be hitting many of those other opportunity sets as measured by the types of lending that are being done in addition to the people who are doing the borrowing. Um, that was that was the goal of the uh, of the uh of the product overall, it's a it's a right recognition that uh, corporate lending is probably the largest of all of those asset classes and and the most diverse in some ways. But also, we again we did want to make sure. Sorry to sound like a broken record on this diversification theme, but uh, you know we 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 didn't want those other exposures to be an afterthought. We wanted to make sure that you felt good if you looked at the index you would see a representation of all of those opportunity sets. Because if you're an allocator, as much as we've been thinking about the index in relationship to investability as an ETF, it also serves as a benchmark. And so if you're, say, a pension plan who has a well-developed alternative or private credit portfolio, you know, you want to be benchmarked not just against how high yield does, but also how you, you could have also been lending to those other sectors. 
You know, you, yeah. you, you should be able to outperform a blend of all of those sectors. Yeah, this is another area where the, the names of the firms involved in them are very much names, you know, you, people will recognize from Starwood to Blackstone, KKR. You know, these are, are big firms who are managing these portfolios and just separate vehicles that package these types of loans together. Yeah. Yeah. Again, that was that was part of the goal, which was, uh, you know, could you by looking at this index, have all of those underlying investment attributes that we've been talking to, but also look at the names and say, boy, that was a well-structured collection of names that have been brought together. Those would be managers that I would like to be working with. Right. So very, very interesting. We're talking with Chris Aceto, CEO, founder of Gapstow, and talk about these alternative credit baskets. Chris, when you think about the, we, we've, ta- we've sort of now covered each of the different segments of alternative credit, and we've talked a little bit about how it is a hybrid between stocks and bonds. But like when you think about building this, um, you know, w- when you think about the challenges, we've talked about the low income environment, but there's also, you know, what happens if interest rates start rising? How do you think this basket starts coming into a market where not only do you have low yields, but maybe yields start going up off their bottoms? Yeah. Well, um, another interesting facet of many of the types of lending we're talking about um, are unique in that they're actually floating rate in nature. In fact, if you were to look through the, the Glacy Index and Glacy's constituents, that the majority of lending being done by these entities um, collectively um, is floating rate in nature, which means that there should not be a, an overwhelming um, sensitivity um, to, to, to interest rates. Um, Overall, and that in the sense that that some of their financing offsets some of the the gains, um, and that uh, uh, you know the, the sensitivity to strong movements in interest rates um, are not there like they are in fixed income. As as we know, if you're invested in the in the, uh, the some of the aggregate traditional fixed income indices, that uh, that movements in interest rates um, are are very very quickly felt. In the performance of those of those funds, uh, it turns out that both theoretically and as well as empirically, that those changes in interest rates have less bearing on the uh, the, the performance of the alternative credit sectors. Um, m- more important to alternative credit are the so to speak credit spreads, meaning the concerns about default rates rather than interest rates. Uh, per se, those those tend the credit spreads tend to dominate in this area, which is again the this is this is why this asset class has the higher yields than do uh, than do traditional fixed income. So so you're getting less interest rate sensitivity, and in fact the index historically um, really has had zero to almost negative correlation with interest rates over over the last five or six years. Again, something that doesn't go unnoticed. You can say that's a plus or minus, depending on your view on interest rates. But if you're looking to the sector to be not all that affected by interest rates, that's a nice property to have. Yeah, I mean, people looking for quote unquote diversifiers. I mean, this this seems like it's got the attributes of of fixed income in the sense that it is investing in loans, but it's certainly got this equity 
riskier element due to the sort of publicly traded nature and that it could trade away from NAV and all those type of things. Um, how is the correlation with equities? I mean, I, I've sort of alluded to it that during the March crisis, when things, you know, um, as things got shut down, there was fears on all this stuff, right? So correlation spike. But generally, how are correlations? Unless it was treasury bonds, the correlation with everything went to uh, one during that, that period of time. So stuff, yeah. but, but longer term, longer term, the, 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 the uh, correlation, depending on how you measure it with equities, say with the S&P 500, is I would put it in the modest camp, 0.6 to 0.7 um, over, over longer periods of time. Um, much of that coming through that premium discount change that comes because otherwise these the underlying navs tend to move with with less correlation but but market dynamics as you say the equity like component to some of these investments um, does come to bear so you know I, I think that's modest when you think about the fact that uh, you know if you looked at correlations between mid cap versus small versus uh, large cap those are very very high in the point nines or so so this does bring some diversification from an equity standpoint, in addition to the diversification away from uh, rate sensitivity as well. Um, again, you begin to add up these nice features again. So we've, you know, in summary, what do, what do people look to alternative credit to do? Their expectation, not always fulfilled, um, but certainly I think if you polled institutional investors, why are you so interested in this asset class? They would say um, compelling total return, very high yield in, in distributable cash, um, modest correlation equities, and very low sensitivity to interest rates. Put all that together, that should be a very interesting uh, mix or part of the mix to my overall portfolio. And if you do look on the institutional side, Jeremy, it's, it's no surprise. We do a survey each year at Gasto of uh, leading pension plans and how much they are investing in alternative credit. And the, the mean of that is now in the very high single digits. And there are some pension plans that now have 15 or 20% of their portfolio in alternative asset classes um, because they, that, that, that set of properties or expected properties um, is, is uh, additive to their broader portfolio. I mean, that's fairly interesting. I mean, we, we think about one of the challenges we said, and we, uh, one of the topics we've come to again and again and again on this program um, is the challenges with a 60-40 given the low rates. And so, I mean, what's interesting, we've talked even just last week um, about this challenges of a 60-40. One of our guests said an 80-20 um, is what he would recommend, you know, because of that challenges of negative returns of bonds. Siegel has come out with things like the 75-25 type of model. Um, what's interesting, if you took your, 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 your comment that the pension funds are taking about 10%, so now we're talking like a 70-30 instead of 60-40, but you're still getting, if this was 10, um, you'd be still getting that type of equity hybrid, right? You're getting some of that equity beta. You're, it's sort of an interesting way um, of, of filling that gap of how do you go from 60-40 to more, but this still has some of the fixed income characteristics. Yep, absolutely. And, and it is interesting that you do find, and in, in this is also in our, our pension research, where there's also, there is an empirical trade-off that, that, in fact, in cross-section, pension plans are reducing traditional fixed income and substituting in alternative credit. That Those that have higher alternative credit tend to have lower traditional and vice versa. So this, this trade-off is, 
um, at least empirically going on. And I also we also know that in policy, in addition to action, um, the, these trade-offs are beginning to uh, to be made. Yeah, you know, no, not a lot of people are fully abandoning traditional fixed income um, for for many reasons, including that is where they get interest rate sensitivity, which sometimes they view as a positive. It's it's certainly an area where they can you know uh, count on uh, um, you know some distributable yield. But as we talked about earlier, the, that 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 is coming at a bit of a cost these days relative to achieving your overall goals. You know, when you're when you're at sixty forty, and again, traditional fixed income at AAA is getting you six and a half. You know, if, if to to make up something theoretically, if you're a pension plan whose actuarial assumption is getting to seven, you don't have to assume a very very large equity risk premium when fixed income is at six and a half to get there. Yeah. Yeah, you know, with fixed income, traditional fixed income is at one or one and a half, you know, uh, or two after fee, whatever it's going to be after fees. Think of the equity risk premium you need to be assuming in a 60-40 to get you back to a seven. That's starting to look untenable. Um, and again, yet again, why people are beginning to look towards other forms of diversification than simply fixed income. Um, we've got about four minutes left. As, as you think about other things GapStyle's focused on, Chris, like as you think about the future of your business and so you got these indexes and, and we become a licensor of them, what what else, uh, how, how should people think about GapStyle? What are the types of things they can come to GapStyle to find? Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it, I think on the alternative credit front, that, that this is an industry that is going to continue to be growing. Um, there's no, there's no um, suggestion that... Um, uh, institutions and hopefully with HYIN and others, you know, you will see individual investors um, continuing to move towards the industry as as well. And so, you know, we would like to continue to be at the forefront of helping investors um, and achieve those goals of putting in place um, well-diversified portfolios and helping them think about the asset class overall. Because it's still very early innings. Um, the fact that we're, you know, having a really productive conversation is just about some of the basics. Um, you know, this 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 indicates that the uh, you know this this asset class is still very very new to people, and so we have a whole new decade of uh, you know this being adopted at a much greater and broader rate, unless um, uh, interest rates spike sometime soon, which who knows. But uh, you know, I think even then, you know, is as, as the professor was saying early on, you know, as we think about inflation and potentially interest rates going up, uh, you know, this, this dilemma does not get solved by, you know, the Treasury going from one and a half to one point eight, you know, or two and a half. The issue is still going to exist over time that, uh, you know, we, we need to be thinking more broadly about uh, uh, taking additional risks uh, with the non-equity portfolio. And you mentioned that you do these surveys. I know you do a lot of publishing on these types of things. Um, where can you know what if people want to stay up to date with all of those papers and and all that stuff? What where you know want to give some suggestions and other things that you you guys are publishing that they can find from you? Yeah, if you go to www.gapstow.com, G-A-P-S-T-O-W.com, um, our white papers are listed there, and we we do survey work on. Uh, uh, performance of uh, hedge funds, interval funds, private funds, publicly traded alternative credit vehicles, all that material is available 
performance and dynamics. We survey uh, what allocators are doing, how the market's changing, products are being developed. Um, that's our space. We try to know all aspects of it. Yeah, and you've got a, a, a real, real great history in the consulting market and consulting different pensions institutions. Uh, so I think you know your 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 approach to this is, and servicing these type of people with the, the education and content you're providing is a, is a really interesting uh, focus for everybody. Thanks, Jeremy. Um, so yeah, you can go to Gapstow to learn more of of what Chris and his team is doing. Um, certainly, our, we're we're talking a lot about this, given you know we become a client of them. Uh, you know, this is a great conversation, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us on Behind the Markets. Great pleasure, Jeremy. Anytime. We talked about the Wisdom Tree Alternative Income Fund ticker HYIN. So let me read a disclosure here. There are risks associated with investing, including the possible loss of principal. The fund invests in alternative credit sectors through investments in underlying closed-end investment companies, CEFs, including those that have elected to be regulated as business development companies, BDCs, and real estate investment trusts, REITs. The value of a CEF can decrease due to movements in the overall financial markets. BDCs generally invest in less mature private companies, which involve greater risk than well-established publicly traded companies and are subject to high failure rates among the companies in which they invest. By investing in REITs, the fund is exposed to the risks of owning real estate, such as decreases in real estate values, overbuilding, increased competition, and other risks related to local or general economic conditions. The fund invests in the securities included in or representative of its index regardless of their investment merit, and the fund does not attempt to outperform its index or take defensive positions in declining markets. Investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the funds before investing. To obtain a prospectus containing this and other important information, please call 866-909-9473 or visit wisdomtree.com to view or download a prospectus. Investors should read the prospectus for specific details regarding the fund risk profile carefully before investing. You've been listening to Behind the Markets. You can listen to us every week on our Behind the Markets podcast. Um, I'd like to thank our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. Have a great week, everybody. Thanks for listening to the Behind the Markets podcast. If you want to learn more about WisdomTree, visit wisdomtree.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at Jeremy D. Schwartz. I'd like to thank Patty Hall for producing our live program on SiriusXM channel 132 and our podcast producer, Daniel Bruno. Join us next week for another edition of the show. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.